this morning we're going to be back in the Gospel of John. Uh, we took a, a little bit of a detour and a little bit of a break. And uh, if my band-aids are uh, distracting to you, I apologize. Uh, I am a, a father of three young kids, which means all my band-aids are colorful and have characters on them. So that's why I, it is what it is. So it is, it's, it's who you got. Um, but we are in the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, we are going to be in John chapter 7. And uh, I've, I'm looking forward to being back in the Gospel of John. Obviously, we've got Easter coming up, and uh, it, it, there's going to be a little bit of a break there naturally with the Gospel of John. But uh, one of the things I'm really excited about is as we get further into John and get near to the cross, we begin to see more of, of Jesus' character and who he is and the things that, that we need to learn as Christians and hold dear to us and getting into more familiar stories. But as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there's some things in the Gospel of John that's hard to preach. Um, and one in particular, which is why, and this is just kind of a behind the scenes for y'all, for, for pastors and those who preach the Word, is that when there's not a drama in the passage, it can be kind of harder to preach in terms of like a, a literary, this is what's happened, this is what's going on. And we've got that happening a little bit in John 7, but... Uh, Really, it's, it's, it's good and it's rich, and I'm excited for us to walk through it uh, this morning. Uh, so uh, this week has been interesting. Uh, I work for the government, and uh, as some of y'all know, uh, if you had AT&T, you did not have cell service for a while. Um, that also meant that 911 went down uh, for some counties. Uh, not the county I worked for, but another county, and it just caused all sorts of chaos, and uh, that was a very interesting discovery this week, but that wasn't the most interesting discovery for me this week. So this was, that was second. The first was that uh, there's a reality show called Kitchen Nightmares that's on Disney+. Plus. And if, you, if you're familiar with it, that's a show that should not be on Disney+. Plus. But Disney owns Hulu, and Hulu got absorbed into Disney+. Plus. So now when I go to my profile, instead of watching Star Wars or Bluey, there's Chef Ramsay yelling at somebody. And so, if you don't know what the show is, I'll just give you a little bit of a background, and, and, and this is kind of going to set up what we're going to talk about today, is the show is a very famous chef named Gordon Ramsay, not Dave Ramsay, Gordon Ramsay, goes in, and he basically goes to these, these restaurants that are dying, and they're dying for all sorts of reasons, but the number one reason is that the restaurant, either the food is horrible, and they're, they're not very clean, or uh, the, the owners just have no idea what they're doing, and they're super self-righteous. And so he goes in and, and he tries to help them and fix it and then they relaunch and reopen. Well, um, the format of each episode is exactly the same. If you think reality TV is all reality, you're incorrect. <laughs> There's a formula to it. And this is the formula of every show. The chef comes in, he hates the food. The chef and owner are always like, oh, the food is great. That's not the problem. People are the problem. And then they're super self-righteous. They're super prideful. And then Chef Ramsay gives them a wake-up call and says, I found a mouse in your freezer, you know, something of that nature. He shuts down the restaurant, they reopen, and then all of a sudden, overnight, it just seems like the owner and chef have completely changed who they are, right? They went from being the self-righteous, uh, really prideful, bitter person into, I'm open to change, I'm humble, I, like, let's do whatever we need to do to fix our restaurant. My food was horrible, now it's better. Thanks, Chef Ramsay. Literally, that's how every single episode goes. And then most of these restaurants close. One, because the, uh, the debt that they're in is just incredibly overwhelming. No amount of renovation was going to fix that. But the second is that 
these owners or the chef or whoever it is that's responsible for the business of the restaurant, they don't actually change. They're still prideful and self-righteous. And although uh, the, the Chef Ramsey gives an incredible gift of a new menu and teaching them things and helping them with renovations, it's not enough to fix the pride and self-righteousness that these owners had. And it's only the owners that truly changed or the restaurants that were sold and bought by somebody else that actually are still open and are still successful today. And so this is a core characteristic that lies in most of the people that this reality show focuses on. But this isn't just subject to a reality show, right? There's a lot of self-righteousness and pride in our world with a lot of people, including maybe some of us. Now, self-righteousness goes a step beyond prideful because self-righteousness isn't just someone who is prideful. It's someone who believes they were above everyone else and they are morally superior. It's the people that they believe they are above everyone else, that they are over everyone else, and that they essentially are the number one and smartest person in the room. There's, there's different characteristics of, of these people who are self-righteous. In the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus is going to address the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and teach us what it means to wash away our own self-righteousness. Because the reality is, look guys, we, we are not perfect people. We're going to struggle with stuff. And there are aspects of self-righteousness we struggle with. And so we need Jesus to help us to see our self-righteousness and to wash it away. And so uh, what's happening at this point, though? If you're, if you're new with us or it's been a while since we've been in John, which it has, it's been a few weeks, what's happening up to this point in John chapter 7? Well, John 6 was a turning point to Jesus' ministry. If you remember back in, in John chapter 6, this is when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And then Jesus claimed to be equal to God. Well, the Pharisees didn't like that. The religious leaders were angry and they sought to kill Jesus. So this is the turning point in Jesus' ministry where he, he was somebody that was kind of a nuisance to the religious leaders, but they didn't see him as a threat, to now seeing Jesus as a threat. And this is what started his journey to the cross. And then Jesus gives this incredible dissertation as to why he's able to make these claims, why he's able to say that he's equal with God, why he's able to say he has the authority to heal somebody on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees didn't listen. They still remained hard-hearted and they still wanted to kill Jesus. But that wasn't only the, the downside of this chapter in chapter 6. Many of his own disciples walked away too. And he went from having a large following to having really just his core disciples there with him. And so as we get into chapter 7, we're going to see this hostility continue. We're going to see how the, the Pharisees, this event that happened in chapter 6, is going to continue to, to bleed over into the future and to really point us to the direction of Jesus going to the cross. And like with chapter 6, chapter 7 takes place within a lot of the same event. In chapter 6, it really surrounded Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath. Chapter 7 uh, takes place within the Feast of Booths and what happens there. So uh, before we read, what is the Feast of Booths? So we've got to give a little bit of a background to that. So the Feast of Booths was basically this really big week-long camping festival in Jerusalem uh, where the Israelites would remember how they lived during the Exodus. And so what they had was Israelite men were required by law to be a part of the Festival of Booths to build a tent made out of 
branches and live in it for seven days and they would celebrate with this big feast. And that's very much a, a very watered down version of what it is. But uh, that's essentially the Feast of Booths was a really big deal. There was going to be a lot of people from all over there in one central place. And I was tempted to preach all of chapter 7 in one day, but uh, when I was looking at the time and looking at this text, it wasn't going to happen. So we're going to be in chapter 7 for this week and next week, or well, and potentially the week after. But if you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. John 7, 1 through 24 says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, and your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he, show, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it as its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up at this feast, for my time has not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there were much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the Father. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We pray with me this morning? Father, we pray that you would help us with our own self-righteousness. God, I pray as we study this text, God, that, that your word would be both piercing and comforting, God, that it would correct wrong thinking and sin in our, our hearts, and God, that it would be a comfort to us as we seek to draw closer to you. God, we pray that you would help us to not be distracted by things going on in our life or, Father, what's happening after church today or what happened before, but God, that our, our focus would be drawn to you. And God, that you would use your word to speak to us, and God, that you and you alone would be glorified through this message. In your son's holy and precious name I pray. Amen. So the best way to go about this text this morning is we're going to walk through the whole text 
and then we have points of application. So we've got three things to walk away with, but we won't get to those until after we've gone through this whole text because there's a lot. <laughs> so let's start with the first nine verses. So verses one through nine give us a little bit of background of what's about to happen in this chapter and, and, and what's leading up to this point. So the Feast of Booth is at hand and Jesus' family is trying to convince him to go. And on the one hand, he's required to do this due to the law, but on the other, his family thought this would be a good opportunity for Jesus to be around more people. I mean, think about it. If you have somebody who is trying to reach as many people as possible, they're trying to make the gospel known, at least in our circumstances now, you go to the biggest, most populated event you can be at. Right? The more people you're around, the more interaction you have, the more likely people are to listen to you. And so his family saw this huge event that was happening. It was telling him, Jesus, this is the prime opportunity for you to be around more people that you've not been around yet. There's not a better opportunity than something like this. But Jesus, one, believed that it wasn't his time yet. But two, Jesus didn't have a problem with fame. We saw a few chapters earlier when he fed the, the 5,000, it was really enough people to fill Bud Walton Arena because that's only the men that were counted, not the women and children who were there with them. It was much closer to fifteen to 20,000 people. Jesus didn't have a problem with fame. He had many people that followed him and knew who he was. In fact, whenever he went to the Feast of Booths and, and did so in private, he overheard people talking about him and they, they knew who he was. But no, Jesus was hated. And he knew that people were out to kill him. And so openly going to the Feast of Booths maybe wasn't the best idea. But here's what's really heartbreaking about this text, though. Look at verse 5. 7 verse 5 says this, For not even his brothers believed in him. I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage and preparing to preach this and missed that verse until finally someone pointed it out to me. And how heartbreaking is that? See, we would assume that Jesus' family believed in him. Jesus didn't just have one. It was, he wasn't an only child, right? His, his mother and father eventually had other children, right? We know James, for example. James was one of his brothers and goes on to write the book of James later on. But his brothers didn't believe in him. His family didn't trust him as Savior. They supported him for sure. And they wanted him to do well and, and they even followed him around and, and were a part of what he was doing, but they didn't believe. Now his brothers came to know who he was later on in their life after Jesus was resurrected, which praise God for that. But at this point, they didn't believe. And it's incredibly heartbreaking because this is, this is his own family who followed him, who 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 knows what he's capable of, who's seen his miracles, but yet still didn't believe. Church, let this be a warning that being in church all your life doesn't automatically mean that you're saved. Just as much as me standing in a garage doesn't make me a car. Right? It requires transformation. It requires you to submit your life before the Lord and for Him to change you. And that's what these individuals needed. And they didn't fully understand what Jesus was doing and therefore they were seeing this from a worldly perspective. You want your ministry to go? Go. But Jesus knew it wasn't His time. And so 
What he does, though, is Jesus gives, it's kind of gives a similar response to his, his brothers as he did with his mom back in uh, the wedding in Cana whenever she said, hey, the wine ran out. I, Jesus, can you help? And then she rebuke, he rebukes her. He rebuked her gently. It wasn't bad, but he did rebuke her gently, but then eventually he did end up doing what she asked. And he does a very similar thing with his brothers. He, he says that his time has not yet come and explains what's going on, how, how he is hated by these individuals because he basically gives their sin out in light. Jesus exposes the fraud, fraudulent activities and the sin of the hearts of those that he is around. And that's why they wanted to kill him. But the other thing too is that his family thought that this timing was perfect. Right? They, they wanted Jesus' ministry to grow. They knew a lot of his disciples left. They knew what happened earlier on the Sabbath was not a great thing for his ministry. In all accounts, this kind of was a low point in Jesus' ministry. It's one of the most lonely parts of his ministry with not only the Jews seeking to kill him, but also a lot of his disciples leaving him. And so everything seemed perfect and prime for Jesus to gain back the following he had and to really be central in conversations. Everything seemed perfect. But Jesus said his time had not yet come yet. The hour had not yet arrived. He said the same thing to his mom at the wedding as well. See, sometimes God's timing isn't our own. We often think that we know what's best and we know when God should move and we know when God should do something. We look at our lives or we look at our circumstances and go, okay, everything is prepped and primed. God, for you to do X, Y, or Z, why don't you do it now? Because we are not God. God moves and does things in His timing and not our own. And we are to trust God in His timing over our own. And sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. But God sees the larger picture and His plan for our life goes far beyond just our own. Right? We are very finite beings to where we only see either what's behind us or barely what's ahead. You and I don't know what our lives are going to look like tomorrow. We don't know what our lives are going to look like a year from now. Right? I, I always go back to thinking about where most of us were in, the, in January of 2020. What we thought our lives were going to look like for that year. And then a lot of things changed and things were very unexpected. For example, you know, for the morning that all the cell phone outage happened, I, it was a normal day. I was planning on going to work, and then all of a sudden my phone didn't work. And then I get an alert that 911 is down, and then I have to figure out, okay, well, are our phone's down at the Benton County office? And so it turned into a lot of chaos, right? Some people thought the world was ending. They're like, oh my gosh, like everything's on fire. It's like, no, the AT&T towers are down. Like it's not, <laughs> you can still contact people through the Wi-Fi. Like it's not the end of the world. But the reality is we didn't expect that to happen. We didn't expect COVID to happen. There's a lot of things we don't expect, but nothing's a surprise to God. And his timing for what he does and doesn't do in our life is perfect. And we need to trust him in that. And can I just acknowledge that's hard. It's hard to trust God with the things that we don't know. We as human beings love control. We love to know what's coming. Right, I, I, As a counselor, when I see people that have anxiety, that's, a, that's something that often they struggle with is they want control. They want to know what happens next. It's hard to let that go. But the reality is God sees the big grand picture of the universe at every point in time 
and we are only here for this finite moment. We've got to trust the God of the universe who knows how everything plays together. So God's timing is always perfect. But what else we see in this passage is Jesus was hated because he revealed sin. He was hated because he revealed sin. Sin hates light and hates to be open. Sin hates to be exposed. And Jesus is a light that exposes the darkness in our hearts. And we either respond towards him with hatred and rejection, or we embrace him and seek forgiveness. That is our responses to him. And this is where the Pharisees failed. They were lost in their self-righteousness. They were lost in their pride and sin. They didn't want their sin exposed for the world to see, and they'd rather kill Jesus than to submit themselves before him. They'd rather kill him than bow the knee. And that's where their hearts were. And that's why they were so hostile towards Christ. So then what happens in 10 through 18? Right? Well, similar to what Jesus did with Mary when he turned water into wine, he did a gentle rebuke, but then he actually ended up doing what, what this family told him to do. Uh, in the wedding in Cana, he did turn water into wine after his mom had left. And his mom was pretty confident. I, love, I always love her response. that She goes and tells the servants after Jesus had gently rebuked her and says, do whatever he says. Like, I love, I love the, the trust that he, she has in that moment but in the, in the love that Jesus has for his mom. But one of the things that we see here is Jesus does go to the Feast of Booths, but, but not maybe in the way that his family expected. He goes in private. He stays hidden away. And we get a look at how people thought about Jesus. Right? Some thought that he was there to lead them astray, and some thought that he was good. It was very divisive in the way that people saw Jesus at this time. So he didn't really draw attention to himself, but then that didn't last long. <laughs> Jesus then begins teaching at the Feast of Booths. And it's, uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, pastors and people who preach, right? It's hard to keep us out of a pulpit. And for Jesus, it's hard for him to, to not teach anywhere he goes. But what we're going to see is he has purpose behind it. And so the crowd recognized that Jesus taught some incredible things, yet he didn't have the training. What, is, what do you mean by that? Well, at this time and in this point of history, if you were a Pharisee or scribe, you had the marks to show that you knew what you were doing. You had the studies. You had the quote-unquote master's degree in theology or whatever it is that, that they had. Right? These teachers, these scribes, they spent their entire lives memorizing Scripture, studying the Old Testament, memorizing entire books of God's Word. They knew their stuff. They studied for years and decades to gain the knowledge that they had. But then here Jesus comes on the scene and is not only speaking as he knows everything, but also speaking with this grand authority. And so the people listening are asking him, how does this guy know what he's talking about? How can he know all these things when he has not studied these things? But then Jesus tells them that he's only sharing what the Father has given to him. Now here's where it gets a little confusing. A lot of us, we know and understand that Jesus is fully God. That Jesus and God are equal. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all the same. The Godhead three in one. Father, Spirit, Son. So then how is it that Jesus was only revealing the things the Father had given to him? It's a little confusing, right? Well, here's where that comes from. And here's kind of where this idea stems from. And I'm going to be very careful not to speak blasphemy right now as I, as I say this. In Luke 2.52... It says this, 
And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, depending on your translation, it may say Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. So here's the question. If Jesus is fully God, then why is it that Jesus, how, how is it that Jesus grew in wisdom and in knowledge? Wouldn't Jesus have already known all that, being fully God? So this is where, church, Jesus' human nature shows. Jesus' human nature still had to grow. Right? Jesus wasn't born out of the womb with all the knowledge in the world and, and immediately talking and, and doing all these things and immediately doing carpentry as a baby. Right? He was still a baby. He had to be cared for. He had to be nurtured. He had to still grow up. And Jesus grew in wisdom and understanding. He was still sinless. Now, the way this works is Jesus' human nature still had to grow and experience things just like we do. But the reality is He's still fully God, which means that God, or He knows still what's in people's hearts, and He still knows all things. But not all things are revealed to His human nature. Here's what I mean by that. So later on in Scripture, when Jesus uh, goes to be with the Lord, or not goes to be with the Lord, whenever He dies on the cross and He's resurrected, before He goes to be with the Lord again, He tells them that an hour is coming in which I will return, which no one knows. Now, how is it that Jesus can be fully God and yet not know something? Because of His human nature. It's the human nature of Jesus in His person, in His earthly inhabitant, that doesn't know these things and is fully man. But He is still fully God. He still has access to all of these things that God does. He is still fully God in it. And it's kind of confusing. But sometimes when we see these things, we just think that Jesus is putting on a show, but He's actually not. This is where the human nature of Jesus really begins to shine through, but His deity is still the same. I hope that makes sense. And if it doesn't, we can talk a little bit more about it after service today. But here's the main point of all this, right? That's not the main point. The main point of all of this, the main point of what Jesus is doing is to show that He was focusing authority on God's Word. Jesus was focusing on the authority of God's Word and the authority of what was coming from Him and not the Pharisees and scribes. He was focusing on the fact that what he was teaching and what he was doing comes from the authority of God's Word and we're pointing to his glory and not his own. Because here's the problem. Many Pharisees would claim to be an authority because they knew God's Word. They claimed to be the people that, that when they said something, it was final, it was over, it was done. However, many of them were self-righteous and missed the point entirely. They were not pointing to God, to God or His perfect Word. They were pointing people to themselves. They were wanting their own glory. They were using the veil of being a religious leader, being someone who loved the Lord to make their own following and their own selves grow and be glorified. And you may think to yourself, oh, Dustin, we don't see that today. Yes, we do. 100% we do. Do you know how many celebrity pastors never actually open a Bible? Do you know how many people will stand in a pulpit and claim to preach God's Word, but not ever open the Word or say anything from it? Or what they'll do is they'll nitpick. They'll say, these are my main points of what I want to give you. This is my, my spiritual TED Talk and why I'm so great. And then, oh, here's a verse to support a little bit of what I said. Guys, this is why expository preaching is so important. This is why it's so important that as your pastor and as someone who preaches the Word, that what I say and what I do comes from this and not this. Because the reality is any pastor, any preacher of the Word preaches in sin. 
because we're imperfect. I'm going to say dumb things up here every so often. In fact, I have done that before. I love my wife so much, and she's really good at letting me know when I've done something not wise. And she doesn't do so to be mean. She does so that I would improve and, and watch my words and, and, and help in my studies. And she's done that for 10 years. Or not, maybe, no, not 10 years. Uh, eight and a half years. And I'm so grateful for it. But here's the thing. The words that any pastor preaches, the things that they do, the things that they teach, the central focus needs to be on God's Word and His glory. Because when the preaching, comes, when the preaching becomes about the preacher, it becomes a problem. When the preaching becomes about the preacher, it becomes a problem. We are to seek God's glory and not our own. My goal is for not to y'all to amass a grand following for me or to think that I'm just so awesome and special, but my goal is to point you to the one who is amazing, who wrote this book, who can change your life. That is what my job is. And to do so with reverence and to do so well. And so this is the final authority. This is what's important. And I hope that you know that whatever pastor or preacher you listen to, I hope that they are doing well in preaching God's word and making that the central focus of what they're doing. Now, we end this passage in verses 19 through 24. And then Jesus gives this other, it gives another argument basically as to why he was justified to heal on the Sabbath. And he brought Moses and the law into it too. I love that he always does that because the Jews at this time really look up to Moses and his law and it's really important to them. And he always brings them into it. He's making them think about how they have all broken the law given by Moses, that none of them are perfect, yet they are still seeking to kill Jesus. They have all done wrong at some point. They have all broken the law at one point or another, yet they are wanting to kill Jesus because of what he did on the Sabbath for healing a man. And then Jesus gives this this really solid argument where he says, why is it that you can circumcise someone on the Sabbath and it not be sinful? But if I heal somebody on the Sabbath, then you want to kill me. He's giving them an argument that they are doing the very thing that they want to kill him for, working on the Sabbath. And he tells them that because they are judging wrongly. That they are looking at Jesus for the one wrong that he did, but not looking at the wickedness and brokenness in their own heart. The Pharisees struggled with self-righteousness. And this is why they were seeking to kill Jesus. They believed they were right and holy above all things, and they see Jesus doing this one thing. They didn't believe he had the authority to do so, and they thought, okay, we need to kill this guy. They they thought they were perfect because of their deeds and their knowledge, but their hearts were broken. And when they judged Christ, they did so wrongly. Now, it's really important for us, before we get into our points of application, to do one last thing as we look at this. Look at the final verse in this, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In uh, God's Word, we often hear the phrase, uh, you should not judge, or uh, you can't judge me. Like, I've, you know, you maybe have heard people say that. One of the things we have to understand about judgment, though, is we are not to judge in a way that we believe that we are righteous above somebody else. There's nothing wrong with seeing sinful behavior and seeking to correct that and go, hey, that's not okay. But what we don't do 
It was we don't look at the thorn in someone else's eye and miss the log in our own. We don't judge in a way that we are saying this person is doing this, this, and that. But I don't do any of that. I'm perfect. That is never how we are to judge. Right? And our judgment really should be more, look more like gentle correction or seeking to love to draw them to the Lord because you yourself need to be drawn to the Lord daily for forgiveness and for repentance because we are imperfect people. But this is the way that they judged. They didn't judge rightly. It would have been one thing for the Pharisees to say, hey, I know that we've messed up in these ways and, and we're in, in, imperfect and we are in need of, of God's grace on us, but, but you shouldn't do this on the Sabbath. It would have been one way. It would have been a little bit different if they approached it like that, but they didn't. They approached it from a place of, you did this, you broke the law, you die. We never break the law. But even by wanting to kill Jesus, their, their, their self-righteousness and their hearts are just totally away from God. And we see this all throughout chapter 7. We see this all throughout the Gospels. And my hope is that you will recognize maybe any self-righteousness that's in you. So what does it look like for us to wash away the self-righteousness? What does it look like for us to look at our own hearts and not be people who are stuck in their pride and stuck in their selfishness and stuck in their self-righteousness where we believe we are above everybody else because we are not. The only person that is, is God. The only perfect person to ever live on this earth was Jesus. So what can we walk away from this text? If you're a note taker, I've got three main points of application for you this morning as we close out. The first is this. Submit your life to God and His control in your life. Understand that God works in His timing and not ours and that we are not the core focus. We have to understand that our lives are not about us. That the universe does not revolve around us. The earth does not rotate because of us. Right? We are, uh, we are to play a part in God's plan for our lives and to live according to the way that He would call us to and to trust Him with our lives. Those who are self-righteous, who think they are morally superior, are also those that think that they are in control of all things and everything surrounds them. And that is not true. We are not to try to be the center of our own lives. We are to consider others as more important than ourselves and trust God. The next is this. We should seek to glorify God and glean from His Word. The more we are saturated with His Word, the harder it is for us to be self-righteous. The more that we are saturated with God's Word, are studying it, are praying, are seeking to be reconciled to God and to seek to draw near to God, the more He changes us. Be in this Word daily. Allow it to speak into your life and to penetrate the brokenness in your own heart. There's healing in this book. There's instruction and there's comfort. The last is this. We are not to see ourselves as the moral superiority. Rather, we are to see ourselves as those who are broken, but Christ is redeemed. Only He is righteous, and we are made so, not by our efforts, but by His. I love the way R.C. Sproul said this, is that we are just one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. That's who we are. And so what I want to do as we close and as we have our time of invitation is I want to ask a question of you, and that is, where is your heart? Where's your heart this morning? Is your heart saturated with self-righteousness? Do you find yourself prideful or do you find yourself at the center of your own focus and attention? 
Are you like these Pharisees where you look at other people's lives and you go, well, at least I'm not living like them. Or are you somebody who really seeks for God to change you and to mold you each and every day? And you just need to be reminded of God's love and His authority on your life. So let me do this. Let me pray as we have our time of invitation. Lord, we thank You for this morning. God, we pray that You would help to wash away our self-righteousness. God, I pray that we would be people who seek to honor You and glorify You above all things. God, I pray that we would seek to be people who judge rightly. God, that we would not to put ourselves as the moral superiority just because we're Christians. But God, that we would look at our own lives and go, hey, we've messed up and we've failed. But God, that we would seek to love other people well and that we would seek to make the needs of other people more important than our own. God, I pray that you would correct that in us. And God, I pray that we would seek forgiveness and love, God, as we have our, the sin of our hearts exposed. God, I pray that our responses would be different than these religious leaders. God, that we would not be so self-righteous that we don't see our need for you, but God, that we would submit our lives to you. Because God, it is through submitting our lives to you that we experience true, found freedom and joy. God, help us to have that freedom and joy. God, I pray for our church this morning. God, I pray that you would just help us to not be self-righteous. But God, that we would seek to honor and glorify you in all that we do. If your son's holy and precious, then we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me as we have our time of invitation?